Hello, everybody. This is the Early Adopter Research Podcast, and today we're talking with Tom Puthiamadam from uh, PwC's Digital Practice. Uh, I'm going to let him give you the exact title. What we're going to talk about today, as we often do, is the importance of building enterprise platforms for digital transformation. Tom leads the practice here at PwC and has got a bunch of examples of how clients of PwC have built uh, different types of digital platforms uh, using uh, enterprise products and other things to create uh, foundations for transformation. Um, so they've just finished a 2018 digital IQ survey that revealed a variety of insights about what companies are thinking about how to do this and what they're afraid of. And actually, some of them, uh, the findings show uh, what people are getting wrong. So why don't we start there? Um, what do you think the most important mistakes that you've seen uh, uh, in the market based on your digital IQ survey? Yeah, I think uh, when you think about the market today, we've been in this digital journey for, you could name it, 10, 15 years. And it originally started with the conversation of digital is about IT. Digital is about data only, or digital is about marketing. And right now, we're seeing for the, the top financially performing companies in our study, their definition of digital has expanded well beyond that. They're thinking about new business models, they're thinking about their workforce and their culture, they're thinking about how to use analytics across the entire enterprise. So for us, well, we're not looking for companies who just consider themselves digital as being successful. We're looking for the companies that are most financially successful and that also have a more expanded definition of what the digital domain is. Because if you nail that, that means you probably have not a corporate strategy, you have a digital corporate strategy. It's one well, of the same. What's the wrong way to think about it? The wrong way to think about it is being just too narrow, to being, I would say, give you an example. I think the wrong way to think about it is that your digital agenda is being managed by some special team sitting in Long Island City who's conjuring up a ton of new innovations and it's a 500-person operation within a 200,000-person enterprise. That would be the wrong way to think of how do you actually go conquer your digital challenge. And so what are the characteristics of the companies who are getting it right? Uh, number one, they have a real executive and most likely the CEO who's championing the digital journey. That's number one. Number two, they're putting employee and customer experience right at the forefront. And they have somebody in that C-suite who is responsible for both. I think once you have that right to begin with, then you have at least the starting point to create a recipe to be successful in this, this bigger landscape of digital. You know, that's really interesting. So it seems like one of the most important things is to be able to have a really unified and, and deep and wide analytic strategy so you can understand what the customer that you're facing is doing. And so that, that your, your decisions about where to go can be informed on you know, real data about what customers are doing. It also seems then that you have to really take a look at the, the channels that you're interacting with the customers and figuring out how you can create more degrees of freedom and more different ways of doing experiments Right. Uh, uh, to make this stuff right. Because I'm assuming that the, the, the right path forward is not to decide what the right path forward is, but to decide how you're going to do experiments in order to find what's going to work for your business. Yeah, I think, I think about it two ways, Dan. I mean, one way, I think consumers want to experiment with you. So you need to be able to provide different options and channels for them to actually be able to interact with you in a store, interact with you online, interact with you via mobile, and see what those reactions are. So I think 
to think about the experimentation model beyond just your four walls and let the customer play with you with in that world as well as your employees, I think is a new way to think about it. But number two, I think where you're headed as well is like, does an organization have this experimentation and culture? Right? Are they willing to continue to dabble and do different things to see what works, what doesn't work? And my only ask is, is expand that net a little bit and create models where consumers can play with you as well before you do a big market launch. Well, one of the challenging things I see in a lot of big companies, there, is, there are institutional disciplines right. that are really powerful and have led to the success of the company. And one of the institutional disciplines you see often is, uh, is tight control on expenses. Right. Another uh, institutional discipline you see is real high uh, and disciplined focus on maintaining operating income levels and growing them. Right. And it seems that in a lot of these areas, you really put stress on those type of disciplines in order to pull off a, a digital transformation. because. You're, you're sitting there, unlike most of the investments companies have been made, made in the past, that you can't say, oh, we have a pretty good idea the ROI is going to be this. We have a pretty good idea the expenses are going to be that. Those right. things may be much more fuzzy in a transformation initiative. How do you advise clients to get over sort of their, what made them successful in the previous era? I find that really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, when we think about what a lot of uh, outside investment firms would do when they look at what a company is doing, how they're investing. If you take the average private equity firm out there, they're not really interested in any of their holding companies making a big digital transformation initiative happen. Why? Because they know that the failure rates are pretty high. And you begin to dig in, like, why are the failure rates so high? Like, if, if you're an outside investor and you have a holding and you want them to actually jump to the next level, you would think technology would be a great way to make that next big leap. But the returns and the time frame for that return is so long, it has most outside investors a bit concerned, a bit weary. Right. It's not going to support the IPO in three to five years that, Correct. that would really provide them a way of, of, of capturing in on their investment. That's right. And as much as we talk about that model, that's the same with, I think, general corporate models, too. A CFO and shareholders are equally worried about this three-year investment, this four-year investment. When do I get the return on it? And when you dig into, well, why is that breaking down? Like, why am I not getting the return on these big digital transformations? The number one root cause from our research is just purely around employee adoption. You cannot get the employees to adopt the new behaviors and new ways of working that brings in automation, right? that brings in a new logistics capability. You name it, they just can't do it. So, uh, so our focus is, coming back to the earlier conversation of, do you have someone in charge of what the employee experience is meant to be? Because for the last couple of years we've been talking about what is the customer experience I think one thing we realized, experience is just a coin. On one side is the customer, and the other side is the employee. They're actually interconnected. So our advice to our clients is, if you can't nail the employee experience, and any digital transformation you're doing, if you can't be very clear on how this employee experience is going to work, then your adoption is going to fail. If your adoption fails, then whatever business case anyone put forward, on this big investment around digital is also going to fizzle away. Well, good. So this is, what you've said has got a lot of implications for what I really cover quite a bit, which is how do you build high-quality, productive, effective enterprise platforms to solve problems for companies? And what I mean by that, uh, as I've written before, is most companies are not going to be in the business of building their own technology. Sometimes they'll build this or that or in applications or integrations, but most of the time they're going to select platforms and buy them and then integrate them. Now that yeah. integrated whole is actually quite a unique construct because the same use of Salesforce, the same use of Workday, the same use of, of, of a variety of different other common enterprise uh, 
uh, software products can be completely different because you find the, the processes and the ways to automate them you know, that are useful to your business and you find a, and create a data supply chain and the analytics platform on top of it that are, that are going to tell you what you need to do. And you can build them differently. You can build them with a lot of degrees of freedom or you can build them very productized and, and, right. and, and different uh, situations demand both as I've pointed out in this uh, framework for productized analytics that, that I often uh, refer to. So, you mentioned when we were talking earlier that there are a variety of different ways of thinking about building platforms to support uh, digital transformation. And you explained that when you think about this problem, you might have to, to, to go back to first principles and uh, explain and, and, and think to yourself, you know, how can we use our, our, our assets that we have and construct a new platform based on them to then achieve our goals. So could you go through a few examples of the kind of uh, digital, the kind of enterprise platforms people have built to support these digital transformation initiatives? Sure. So I think to start, I think what you said is right. Like companies today, they're buying the best cloud platforms out there. They're stitching them together. They're building a, a, a data lake of some kind to support these platforms to give you the insights that you want. But ultimately, like, what are your real assets? Your assets go beyond just the data you have in your customers or employees. It could be your, your physical assets, right? It could be your real estate domain. I mean, you, you, could, you could pick what you determine to be your strengths. And I believe, if you think about platforms, anything about ecosystems, I think it's really hard to be a product-based company. I think it's really hard to be a service-based company. But to be a platform-oriented organization, that has, I think, a lot of merit for growth. So for example, one of our clients, a big office supply retailer, they had the same questions. It's like, how do I leverage our assets to compete differently? So what do I have? I have a great real estate footprint next to most of my consumers. Uh, I have a great customer service staff. I have a great inventory. Um, I have a reasonable digital layer that's able to interact with consumers. But how do I begin to marry that all together? That would compete with the largest online retailers out there, the ones that everyone's scared of. And the thought was, how do we, why don't we package that up and understand the true need of their small and medium business customers? And I see. So the, the, the first step is, do you have a platform that can actually harness everything you know about your customer? Correct. Well, and, if, and, and if it's an internal initiative, everything you know about your employee who's going to be the customer of the internal initiative. That's right. So in, in, in essence, a lot of the, the systems out there that allow you to integrate data from lots of different places, either using graph technology or journey mapping or things like that, can be really valuable in creating a wide and deep view of what's going on. That's right. But you need all those views, though. Like, what is that graph database going to give you? How does that tie to the journey of a consumer? And how does that create a new, I would say, better outcome for that end consumer employee? I think once you know that, like in this office retailer example, to give them a solution that takes all their administrative services off their back, because for a small, medium business, what are they concerned about? They love their customers, they love their product, that's where they started, that's where they started their business. And how do you actually give them the ability to just focus that entirely and let the data, let the infrastructure all be managed by somebody else? So it allows you to get back to what you love. It allows you to get back to what grew the business in the first place. Now, one kind of platform we talked about is the analytics platform. Yeah. Now, if you're talking about doing what you just said, you're talking about building a new sort of platform that will support a, a service-oriented, you know, kind of software-as-a-service interaction between the office retailer and the, uh, the, That's right. the, the customer. Now, now all of a sudden, you're doing something that looks a lot more like Salesforce. 
you know, in terms of, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the challenges you have at creating a high-quality SaaS software. When you did that project, did you guys take something like Salesforce, uh, an existing enterprise platform that was mature, and tailor it and private label it? Or how much of the did you find that you needed to do through integration and creating a new surface, you know, user interface layer? Um, it was a combination. It was, we actually use enterprise platforms, but we had to tailor it a fair bit in this setting to actually make it work. Um, but I, well, your point earlier, I think about the data layer underneath it. Because as soon as you get in this business, you're in the business of prediction. You got to predict well, how much does that small medium business need in supply X, Y, or Z. Now you got to be that sort of prescient about what your consumer needs. There's no way you're going to do that unless you're able to harness all the data that before was sitting in four different silos in the organization. Now you're trying to bring it all together. What happened at the retail store? What happened online? What there was conversation between you and the service rep? All that needs to be able to come together if you're going to be able to provide that type of service to an end customer. So it seems like, given what I know about most uh, companies, it seems like most people are going to have to build a lot more analytics muscle than they have right now. I think today... We are still at the early points of all things AI, right? Now, even from our study, the number of our executives who say they really had the AI investment nailed, 1%. 1% of the executives from our study said they know exactly what their AI investment is going to do for them. So I think we're still, I think, on the 10-yard line of what the analytics capability needs to be at our clients. And once they begin to get that, then you're going to see this begin to see these leaps forward. Right now, we're st- I think still stuck in this digital morass, this digital mud, and we're not going to get there until we see bigger investments and a bigger acknowledgement of what AI and what data analytics can do for you to leap forward. Well, one of the things when I talk to people about this enterprise platform idea, I get some pushback sometimes, and right. so some people say, "Dan, are you saying that I can just go out and buy off-the-shelf stuff and somehow get a differentiated advantage off of that?" Well, if I can buy all that stuff, my competitors can buy all that stuff, where's the differentiation? Right. And I think that there, it's, it's a good point because it is true that, that, that as products become more powerful, as data platforms become more powerful, every, they become available to everybody, right. especially if you're talking about the product-based strategy. But I think that there's a variety of aspects that give you differentiation if you pursue this enterprise platform strategy. The first is the ability to master your data supply chain. All of these products are going to work better if they have more data, better data, and you can deliver it to them and then harvest the data from them and use it in other places. So creating an agile data supply chain is really important. The second part is having an automation architecture that's powered appropriately by AI and ML. And so you can buy all the same AI and ML tools, but the important part is using them right where they have a good fit and they actually provide a lot of advantage so that your people are more powerful so that your processes run better. That is not a trivial thing and, and, and yeah. I don't think it's very, very easily to work out no matter who you have on staff. That's right. And then the, the, the third thing is that user interface, user experience design. I think that that's also a, a far underrepresented uh, skill in a lot of companies that are trying to do this. If you get all of those things right, I think you have tremendous differentiation. Yes. I mean, you know, what what have you seen? What's what it's what have you seen happen in in um, the various implementations that 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 either proves or disproves that theory? I think you framed the issue pretty well, because I think all the cloud technologies that are out there, it's a utility platform. So the only way you truly, and I would almost flip it on you a little bit, which is I think the only way you really can differentiate is nailing that experiential layer on top. 
Only way you can actually fuel that experiential layer is with the data and the analytics that allow you to make better choices. So for example, right now, you know, we're working with the big hospitality client. We've been talking about actually using IoT, sensor data about you at a resort to know exactly, well, like what are your needs and desires at a resort? Most hotels cannot, they don't even know where you're at in the hotel, let alone what you need. So what if I actually had facial recognition sensor technology sitting across the entire hotel? All the data is now being ingested by my data orchestration layer. And because of that facial recognition technology and that data, I'm able to know that Dan is actually at the pool and he's been there for probably two hours. Hasn't had a drink in his hand the whole time. I can actually now predict and actually get the wait staff to send you your favorite pina colada at the poolside. That's an experiential layer that no hotel can do today. But if you actually have the IoT infrastructure in place with the cloud technology that will actually feed into and the analytics that's being captured through sensors, I can actually tailor an experience for you that leverages everything we talked about behind the closed door. But now, okay, I'm in my, my ROI, uh, operating income, expense you know, yes. disciplined organization. What you talked about is a large set of platforms that are interacting. The IoT platform, the right. analytics platform, uh, the, the, the operational platform, all of them interacting in this seamless way. How do you get that started so you can prove that it's worth making the investment for all of the hundreds of places you might have? It's a, it's a, I think for years we've been talking about that exact scenario. There's never been an ROI for it because the technology was too expensive. We've been talking about this for five, six years, about this use case in hospitality. Meanwhile, no one's done it because costs were always too prohibitive. But today, the facial recognition technology, the AI technology, I think has become so much more affordable that you can actually deploy this technology in a hotel and not have the five to 10x cost that you actually had to spend you know, four or five years ago. So I think the innovation that's been happening over the f- last few years has begun to decrease, I think, the, the cost point for a lot of these new tech things that we actually can deploy tomorrow. So the cost of experimentation is going down. Yes. Got it. Yeah. Um, now, when you when you think about you know how you're going to go forward, you know, in, in a world like this, what's what's interesting to me is understanding the fit of a variety of these technologies. Now, whenever we see an AI product or an ML product, you know, advertised or marketed, it's often the claims for it are made are very exaggerated. And then when you actually start using it in practice, you find that it's very good at a certain narrow range of activities if you have the amount of data that you, you, you need. And then it's insensitive and actually quite wrong, you know, once you get out of its sweet spot. So how have you advised clients to understand the sweet spot of some of these client, these technologies that are getting cheaper? Because just because they're getting cheaper doesn't mean they're getting wider and more robust. Right. Yeah, I think um, we're in a, a hype cycle right now. And we're in a tremendous hype cycle for what AI will do. We have yet to still hit the trough that comes right after it, where I think executives begin to pull the plug on different data investments because they're not seeing the return on it. Like, we have not hit that stage, but that's going to likely happen. After that, we're going to see the rise of the application in, in real business use. You know the hospitality scenario, Dan? We have approximately 40 use cases that we could build out that will transform no different than how cities talk about being smart cities. We want to make smart hotels, for example. 40 use cases we could deploy. I would never advise any of our clients to say, let's do 20 of them. We just want to get three right. And that's a moderate investment to see, hey, is it providing value to the customer? Is it changing the way we're utilizing assets 
right, in our hotel? Is it changing the way people are consuming our products in a hotel and our services? Like, let's see that happen, and then let's increment on top of that, increment on top of that. And each of those increments are just another experiment, just another experiment. Because out of those 40, I promise you, 15 to 20 of them will crash and burn. Right, which is not what, you know, uh, careers are made out of. I mean, how, what, what you're saying essentially is that in order to make digital transformations work, you have to adopt an agile methodology where failure is tolerated in a way that culturally is really not tolerated right now. You know, I know we talk about the, the failure topic often. I think the failure topic has been branded wrong because the failure topic is sometimes spoken of as these big, massive, colossal failures. What I'm talking about is I want to have small experiments happen. So even talking about this topic of PwC, we said we want to create a digital culture of innovation. So how do you go do that? So I was at a meeting with one of our insurance clients, and we decided that we're going to bring one of our second-year associates who's on the audit job into this meeting to talk to the global CFOs of this insurance client. And why do we bring this individual in? Because she knew at PwC we want to become a digital firm, and there's all this hoopla around it. So she decided, if you have a culture of innovation, this is what your employee is going to do. Crystal decided that over the weekend, I'm going to learn how to use Alteryx. She spent 12 hours over the weekend to learn how to use Alteryx. Monday morning, she came in and said, I think the work that I do that takes me 50 to 60 hours to go do, I've created an Alteryx workflow, experimented with it, tweaked it, and in two weeks, she nailed it where she says, I can do that same task. That's a weekly assignment for me. It takes me four hours to do. It used to take me 50 hours to go do that. So I think that's the level I think we want to be able to create with our clients. Like create these experimentation models that it's not these big capital investments all the time. How do you create these micro investments of people's personal time, right? Crystal decided to study up Alteryx over the weekend on her own time. And she came to work on Monday and began to experiment with something she knew nothing about two weeks before. That's what I think we want to be able to do is how do you create this new culture and experimentation model where everybody's playing with technology and you're finding these great things that are proven at a small scale, and then you can let it blossom and go big. Right, but that's, I guess, the, the, the challenge is the blossom and go big part. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, how do you, it seems to me that, you know, when you're talking about a disciplined organization, you know, and, and you know, the, 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 the hospitality industry is incredibly cost, you know, sensitive. Yes, yeah. they, they often have workers who are, uh, by in, intentionally, uh, you know, paid at low levels because that's what, you know, they can afford. They have low pay levels, low skill levels. Yeah. But these people are the customer interface. Right. So it seems like, you know, in this, the hospitality industry, but in a lot of other industries, it's the front line of the workers who have to actually adopt all this, this new ways of working, right. this new technology. Um, you know, how do you go about advising people how to make that happen? Uh, I think it depends on the type of employees you're talking about. Certain employees need to be amazing with their customer experience, but if you could free them up from the day-to-day -day grind that they're working on, they would actually be better in front of the client, better in front of the customer. So in the same hospitality environment, if you look at uh, some of the work we did in hospitality where a front desk agent needs to look at this technology that is so antiquated, like I can understand why they don't want to come to work if you look at the tools that are in front of them. But if you empower them with tools that are designed so exceptionally well, just as good as anything we engage with on our mobile devices today that are just built for consumers and so engaging, so easy to use, I think they'll be happier employees. Happier employees are usually better with the end customer. So I think there's different ways to engage different types of employees. Frontline employees, that's what I would do. 
people that are working in the back office, like Crystal, doing a lot of data, data analysis and science around it, like give her the freedom to go play with new technology, spark that curiosity, and let her fly, because that's made her now a happier employee at PwC. So I think it depends on the type of employee you're talking about. Well, one of the, the, the phenomenon I've seen is that, that I think some of the, many companies of all sorts underestimate the difficulty of change. Right. And I remember talking with some people who were implementing the kind of collaboration platform at IDEO or IDEO. IDEO, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is a, a place where you could not get a more digitally informed, digitally skilled uh, uh, That's right. workforce. And they were on their fourth implementation of a digital collaboration platform because really? they had tried three or four others and they just never got it right. And so they, but they, they kept trying because they knew it was really important that they, they do better, that they get a better one. Right. And I was, it really surprised me. Wait a second. And nobody was angry about it. No. No, it was just, oh, well, we just got to keep trying. And right. now, but if you look at like, what happens at a lot of these data lake projects, yeah. it's obvious that we have to have data lakes you know, in all of these companies. Right. There is no choice to go back and say, oh, we're going to use a SQL-based data warehouse to right. store all our data. Um, it's not possible to, to do that. Now, you have so many different formats of data so many different uh, volumes of data, uh, you're going to need something that's much wider to realize on right. HDFS or object store to store all of it. Right. And then you need multiple ways of integrating it into models to make it work. But in a lot of, you know, some of the, the, the financial institutions, for example, one of the jokes I heard was, we have six data lake projects, right. and the sponsor of each is buried at the bottom of each of the data lakes. <laughs> right. so, so, you know, there, obviously the tolerance of wasn't there. Like, oh, we have to you know, we, we know we have to get to the data lake. We don't know how many iterations it's going to take, but we're just going to keep going until we get there. So, yeah. I mean, this is where I see evidence of this sort of impedance mismatch between the, the top-line desire for digital transformation and then the actual tactical operational tolerance for the kind of uh, uh, experimentation and, and uh, uh, failure, if you will, or learning from failure that it takes. Right. Well, even the FS example, it makes me wonder why that would occur. Like, why would that happen at an organization that probably has a hierarchical culture of some kind? Like, but this is like what we see in our research where I don't believe our clients are taking this digital agenda seriously enough. Because if there was truly a CEO sponsoring the digital transformation agenda, and he knew or she knew they had six data lake projects going on, I assume that CEO would step in and say, enough of this. Right? We're, not, we're not taking this digital topic seriously enough because clearly, as a CEO, I've outsourced this to a bunch of other people. As soon as you outsource something as critical as the data that runs your company to six other organizations and let them do their own thing and there's people now buried under the lake, it's pretty clear that the accountability and the governance was non-existent. So I think that's what we want to be able to change today. Is like for the organizations that are taking digital seriously, a CEO is putting their fingerprints all over it. Versus, I think, the years past, they gave it to a CMO. Let them play with their little data lake on c customer data. Let the COO do their thing. Let's be, let's be honest, our customers flow through marketing, go through operations, go through finance and billing, and then they get an end product and a bill. Like, that's what a customer feels. And meanwhile, like in your example, I would assume that they had six different silos, all representing different parts of the business and what a customer journey would look like, doing their own little thing. So I think. I think now is the time to get really serious about this digital agenda. If CEOs are paying lip service to it, 
I think it's time to take notice and do something different. So, in other words, you're arguing that, hey, we do have a chief digital officer at all these companies. It's called the CEO. Has to be. Right. I think the concept of the CDO at some point needs to fade because I don't think a CEO can at any point outsource the most critical movement in their company. Leveraging AI, leveraging automation, leveraging all this new technology innovation, I don't know how you outsource that to somebody else. Why do you think that the CDO no longer makes sense? When did it make sense? I think it made sense when we were, uh, when the digital topic was relegated to IT, when it was relegated just to consumer experience. The digital topic is an enterprise-wide topic. Who runs the enterprise? So that's why I say, as soon as you think that your digital definition is an enterprise-wide topic, then you don't need a CDO. You may need leverage from, uh, CEOs may need leverage for people that will help get the journey done because they have a multitude of responsibilities on their plate, of course, but they need to be the ultimate signing authority on what that digital investment's about. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today, Tom. This has been a really fascinating conversation, and I appreciate your spending uh, this nice afternoon in uh, late November in 2018 with me. Great. Thank you, Dan.